This is Cybok, the cybersecurity body of knowledge, distilling the knowledge from internationally recognized experts and providing foundational education and training for the cybersecurity sector. Hello and welcome to Cybok. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire. Joining us today is Vasil Rousseff. He's a professor in cybersecurity at the University of New Orleans and is author of the Digital Forensics Knowledge Area. Well, digital forensics has been in the process of definition for you know some 20 years now. A simple way to think about it is that we are trying to, uh, to figure out what happened, which is broadly the question of uh, forensics. And in in this case, uh, we're using uh, digital sources or uh, computer and communication systems. And so we're examining the current state of the system uh, or artifact, and we're trying to recreate some uh, relevant history. So often we're interested in questions of what happened, when did it happen, who did it. And so, so the question of attribution to, to a human actor is, is usually critical in most of these investigations, as is, of course, the question of provenance. So we need to have trust uh, in the means by which uh, we have acquired uh, the evidence. And what sort of things do we run into when it comes to, to uh, legal concerns and, and the standards that need to be met there? So digital forensics has been defined as the shotgun marriage uh, between uh, science and legal proceedings, and I'm paraphrasing here. (laughs) Uh, But it is important to recognize that uh, the law works differently than science. So the law works by precedence, science works by, uh, you know, uh, scientific method. So there is, so precedent is not what drives us. So we need to develop methods. We develop methods in the service of of legal proceedings. From that perspective, really what defines forensics is whatever the law says is forensics, that's what it is. We may have sound scientific methods. If they have not been approved by the legal systems, they are not forensic by definition. Hmm. Can you take us through uh, what what are some of uh, the methods that you use? What are some of the, the techniques and processes and, and standards that you need to apply? The most common standard uh, is uh, is known as the Daubert standard, and that concerns all uh, forensic evidence, and it stems for, uh, from a series of cases, uh, three cases actually, in, um, and uh, the U.S. Supreme Court set out uh, some broad principles that can be applied, uh, that, that should be applied uh, uh, when determining what uh, forensic evidence can be introduced. At the same time, uh, the court left a lot of leeway to the judge to decide what goes in and what goes out. So in modern proceedings, uh, you would typically have hearings uh, ahead of the case uh, where uh it is decided what kind of evidence uh, is is admitted and what kind of evidence is not admitted. In other countries, uh, th- th- there have been uh, you know further development, and in some cases, is uh, is placed uh, directly 
uh, into law, but they have largely followed these precedents and has, have kind of uh, expanded on, uh, on the principles in there. Well, let's move on to uh, the second section that you cover here in this, um, in this knowledge area, and that's uh, operating system analysis. Can you uh, give us an introduction to that section? So operating systems are the base uh, software layer upon which all applications rely. Uh, and uh, operating system services allow us to gain insight as to what applications are doing. And also the operating system is responsible for managing all the resources, including storage devices where uh, all the files are stored, all the file systems are organized. They manage main memory. Uh, which is uh, where all the processes and all the data that they operate uh, on are. And also the operating system is the one managing all communication to the outside world. So uh, it is a, a, a very important leverage point in terms of understanding how applications uh, behave and what uh, what they do. Well, let's go through uh, some of those uh, specifically and, and go through some of the details. I mean, when... When we're dealing with storage, things like hard drives, um, solid-state drives, and, and those sorts of things, um, what sort of things are in play in terms of forensics with them? So we can acquire a device at different levels of abstraction. At the lowest level, sometimes what we have to do, especially in mobile phone forensics, is, is literally uh, remove the chip uh, from the board and acquire it at, at the lowest uh, possible level, and then using knowledge about how uh, memory is organized, uh, reconstruct the content. That's not the most typical way of doing it. Um, usually we use um, uh, standards such as uh, you know, state, uh, SATA and SCSI protocols to uh, in interrogate uh, a device such as a hard disk or a flash disk and acquire it in terms of block storage. So it Typical storage device would contain blocks. So it would be it would be just a sequence of blocks. So we can uh, acquire those blocks and then try to uh, reconstruct the file system image, including things that might have been ostensibly deleted. And so, what about within uh, system memory itself? So, main memory forensics is uh, uh, has emerged as a very important source of forensic information, uh, especially, for example, uh, when it comes to investigating malware. Uh, a lot of modern malware is memory resident. It never makes it to the disk. So if you just look at the disk, uh, as we've historically done, you'll find nothing. In main memory, things are still not uh, encrypted. Uh, they are uh, often in a very investigator-friendly form. Uh, we can uh, retrieve internal data structures of the application. We can retrieve encryption keys and, and other uh, information that may be necessary uh, during the investigation process. It is uh, increasingly indispensable in, in certain types of uh, investigations. You know, I, I suppose in my own mind, I had always imagined that... Um, uh, you know, the main memory, the, the RAM and the system is sort of uh, temporary. The things are always changing and, and floating around in there. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case. That things uh, do hang around there? Yes. You know, when was the last time you completely shut down your laptop? 
And in fact, you know, the uh, move towards portable devices uh, has made uh, May memory uh, even uh, more persistent than, uh, you know, back in the days. You know, the first experiments uh, some years ago were on, on desktop machines, and they found out that, you know, certain models of computers would not reset memory even when you uh, press the power button. So if you just press it for a split second just to uh, trigger a, um, a reboot, you'll find that uh, memory is still there. People have done even physical experiments, you know, how quickly it fades away and uh, you, if you can freeze it and, and, and so on. So uh, memory is not quite as uh, fragile as, as we think of it. I think in part because of this research, you know, uh, modern hardware will automatically zero out uh, memory when you reset it. But who wants to reboot a computer? What about the the, the reality these days that that uh, you know the amount of memory that we have, uh, you know, both external storage and and RAM and so forth. I mean, they just keep growing at uh, at quite a, a clip. Um, and so it seems as though to me that there's much more that you have to deal with. Just the the physical amount of uh, of information you're dealing with uh, that could become a burden in itself. That is true, and uh, the amount of information that has has become available uh, to investigation has grown uh, tremendously. However, at the same time, some of that growth is 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 kind of hidden, in the sense that we're no longer seeing uh, massive storage devices, the massive storage devices that would have projected a few years ago. So there aren't very many desktops with you know 10 terabyte uh, drives. It's not that people don't have that information. It's that a lot of that information is being accumulated out of sight uh, in in the cloud and you know similar services. So in some sense, uh, over the last few years, if you look at the numbers, the growth has not been uh, at the same rate. So what we're seeing on the end systems, on the consumer-facing devices, we'll see that the typical device has not really grown as fast as in the past. And um, I believe the the reasonable explanation is that uh, the data has just accumulated elsewhere. Well, you you mentioned the cloud. Let's move on to to that topic. How do you uh, work with forensics when you're working in the cloud? Two general ways uh, one could approach this. Uh, So one is to uh, continue what we know and uh, examine the client devices, so phones, uh, laptops, uh, et cetera, and try to find uh, what traces are left there. So this is an extension of work that we've done for years with browser forensics, email forensics, and so on. The problem with this approach is that we're just seeing a, a small a small part of it. A lot of it is resident in the browser. A lot of the applications are actually running in the browser. Think of Google Docs and, and the whole uh, G Suite uh, that uh, Google provides. We also found out that the actual artifacts, the documents, they have a completely different structure which is uh, essentially unrecoverable if you look at the, uh, the local storage. Mm. For example, uh, a Google document is different than a Word document. So a Word document is just a snapshot of the data structure describing the current content of a document. A 
a Google document contains the complete editing history of that document since the very beginning. So obviously, if you're interested in a forensic examination, you want to have that uh, complete history. It is a very fine-grained history down to the millisecond, so we, we've even been able to extract some biometric fingerprints, keystroke dynamics. So it is a completely different world uh, for which we're largely not prepared because uh, the way uh, that data is accessed is through APIs, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of APIs uh, that would be relevant. And our current forensic tool set is largely empty of such tools. Oh, interesting. But one of the areas uh, that you cover here is, is this notion of artifact analysis. Um, you cover things like uh, cryptographic hashing and block-level analysis uh, and things like that. C can, you, can you give us an overview? What sort of things are you covering here? So artifact analysis uh, refers to data objects, uh, usually files, and uh, these are generic investigative techniques. Uh, uh, the way I think about them is... Uh, these are techniques of uh, first resort and last resort. So hashing would be a, the prime example of a technique of first resort because it is um, uh, very cheap and uh, gives uh, very definitive results. We, For example, have we seen this file before or not? And uh, we just apply it because it allows for a lot of filtering to take place. Uh, other techniques uh, such as, uh, for example, approximate matching uh, could be a technique of last resort where we have, you know, uh, lots of files and we don't know what we're looking at. And so just broadly finding similarities might allow us to cluster and kind of reduce the problem space. They could also be applied sort of on the front end of an investigation to, uh, again, uh, narrow down the scope and, and, and kind of hopefully uh, make the, uh, the inquiry more targeted from the outset. What sort of things do you see being available to people in the future as we're looking ahead? What sort of forensic tools can you imagine uh, being available? My general view is that uh, the digital forensics of the next 10 years will look uh, less like the forensics of the last 30 years in the sense that we are going to be forced to uh, deal with, with the cloud. And so... In that sense, digital forensics is going to look much more like uh, the data analytics techniques uh, applied in other domains. So it will look a lot more like we're going to have uh, tons of data and we are going to need to apply a variety of statistical machine learning techniques to try to make sense out of it. So in the past, the problem has been figuring out what happened. In the cloud, things tend to be recorded at a fine granularity. So we have, in many respects, the opposite problem. We have a, a huge amount of information, you know, detailed logs of every single thing that uh, happened. And so we will be trying to make sense of it and, and again, reduce it to those uh, most relevant forensic uh, questions. You know, what happened and uh, who triggered it and what was the intent um, and so on, sort of drive it back to the human actor. What are the takeaways that you'd like people to uh, to have when they when they read through uh, this area of uh, the cyber body of knowledge with the 
forensics, what sort of things would you like them to leave with? To me, the main takeaway is that this is a fairly well-established area, which is in the early stages of a major transition to uh, a completely different model. This uh, brings uh, substantial challenges. We are going to have to rework our entire toolkit, but also brings uh, completely new, qualitatively new capabilities that will allow us to perform investigations at a much larger scale, much faster. We'll be able to apply uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques, which will allow a lot of the more routine cases uh, to be automated. And it should be uh, a goal uh, because we don't have uh, nearly enough uh, digital forensic experts. And I don't see how we could possibly have many more than we currently have. So we will have to lean on uh, more intelligent and more intelligent technology to, to help us get the answers that we need. That's Vasil Rusev. To learn more about the Cybok project and the knowledge area we spoke about today, visit cybok.org. This podcast is a product of the University of Bristol. Cybok is funded by the UK National Cybersecurity Program and led by the University of Bristol's Professor Awais Rashid, along with Professor Andrew Martin, Professor George Denisis, Professor Emil Lupu, Professor Steve Schneider, and Dr. Howard Shivers. The Cybok Podcast is produced by The Cyberwire with coordinating producers Jennifer Iben, Kelsey Bond, and Bristol University's Yvonne Rigby. The executive producer is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.